I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 287. And today I'm joined by John Dudley, host of Knock On TV and the Knock On podcast, to discuss the concept of mastery and the work ethic and focus required to achieve that level of success in the worlds of archery and bow hunting. All right, welcome to the Wired Hunt Podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today we've got John Dudley with us. And he's a guy that likely needs no introduction. But just in case you're not familiar with him, he is the host of Knock On TV and the Knock On Podcast. He's competed in an uncountable number of professional archery competitions. And he's one of the, if not the, leading expert and coach in the modern archery world. Now, as many of you know, this summer, we've been doing this kind of series of episodes in which we're chatting with different elite performers across all sorts of different fields about the routines and training regimens and practices that have led them to success and whatever it is they do, and then finding out how that can apply to hunting. So today with John, we're going to take that idea and apply it to archery. In this conversation, we discuss some high-level concepts around the idea of achieving mastery in a given field. And then we hear yet another perspective on how to prepare for high-pressure situations. And then finally, dive deep into a whole slew of different expert-level archery questions. And uh, I brought someone else on the show to help me do that uh, because, you know, I take my archer pretty seriously, but I'm in no means close to where John's at. Um, I've still got a whole lot of learning to do. As many know, I've been working through target panic issues lately and uh, just, just kind of following actually a lot of things that John is teaching to try to achieve that. So to dive in deeper than even I could go, I brought my buddy and frequent contributor Andy Mayon to help me do that. And if you heard episode 284, you know how serious Andy takes archery and the attention to detail that he applies to that pursuit. So with that being the case, he seemed like the perfect guy to join me in co-hosting this one. And uh, I think he'll give us an even more unique perspective from John. So that is the plan. In just a minute here, I'll be joined by both John Dudley and Andy May, and we're going to dive into a fascinating conversation that I think can help make all of us better archers and hunters. 
All right. Now joining me and Andy is John Dudley. Welcome back to the show, John. Thanks, man. How's it going? It's good. Uh, I think the last time we chatted on the podcast was maybe two or three years ago. Um, so it's been a long time coming, but I appreciate you making the time to do this. Yeah, you're welcome. Time flies. I was I thinking the other. I was thinking the other day. I, for some reason, I thought I was only doing my podcast for about a year, and then <laughs> I started going back, and I thought, okay, yeah, I don't even want to. I don't even want to know how I blanked out that much time in my life. I feel the same way, especially with a with a kid now. It's like a year passes, and I have no idea what happened to it. Yep. Um, it's easy to let it get away from you. So given the fact that time is money and time is our most valuable commodity, I'm thinking uh, rather than you know the usual chit-chat, beating around the bush type of stuff that sometimes happens on podcasts, I kind of want to just jump right into the hairy stuff. Are you, uh, <laughs> are you up for that, John? Yeah, that's fine. So we're doing this series um, this summer where we've been talking to a whole bunch of different people um, that are high achievers or high performers or peak performers in in some kind of field Um, and just kind of studying all the different things that make those people tick. So what are the practices and the habits and the routines? What are the training regimens? Like what's what are these key things that make people – really good at whatever it is that they do and then trying to figure out, you know, how can we take stuff from those folks and apply that to what we're doing as hunters? You are like a perfect example like this. It seems from the outside looking in at least because of the success you've achieved on the archery side and then how you've applied that to bow hunting too. And with all that being the case on top of your own experience, just like kind of watching you from afar and listening to the podcast and seeing different things you've done, like you surround yourself with a lot of people like this, whether it's Joe Rogan or Marcus Aubrey or Cameron Haynes or Andy Stump, whoever it is, I just feel like you've been able to, to interact with a lot of people that have kind of achieved this like mastery of some thing or another. And I'm kind of curious when you hear that term, John mastery, in, in your context, like what does that mean to you? What does it mean to achieve mastery of something? And then what do these people that you know that have achieved mastery, what stands out to you as, as being consistent across all of them? Well, definitely work ethic is the most consistent. I think, I think people that have that, they naturally gravitate to each other as well. You know, all of these really cool all of these really cool personalities that I've been really fortunate to kind of continue to snow snowball with, it just it I think a lot of that continues to snowball because of there's a really cool time right now with social media where if you are kind of a positive force that way, you're more exposed to other people that that like that. And all of those people want those kinds of people around them. Mm -hmm. And so they, so they naturally reach out, you know, I continually try to, I continually try to avoid relationships that are, that are negative or people that don't follow through with what they tell me that they're going to do. You know, if, if someone promises me something, it's like, I, I get it. Sometimes you forget, but there comes a point in time where, You've given them enough benefit of the doubt. And, you know, if every single time you go in their bedroom, so to speak, and you're stepping over a bunch of dirty crap on the floor, I mean, it, it goes back to my first, my very first roommate when I was set to play college football. You know, his room was a dump. 
uh, you know, he never did dishes and he was always, you know, barely did laundry. And you know what? He, he barely got by with grades. He was always late to practice and just that sort of behavior. It's, it's just like, it doesn't help someone who's trying to be positive. It kind of goes back to the very first time. If anyone ever started lifting, you know, you kind of want to have a lifter lifting partner so you could have a spot. And all of a sudden that guy calls you and it's like, Hey, I'm not going to go today. And you're like, okay, no problem. And then the next day he's like, yeah, I'm going to go, but then he doesn't show up and you just, you end up like adjusting yourself so much to try to meet people in the middle to where it never works. And I just really feel like, if you have a good work ethic and you're willing to just continually pound at whatever it is you want to do, then you need other people that help you stay on that path and not, you know, carrying, carrying other people on your path gets really hard. I mean, if you're a good friend, you do it for people that are in need of support at certain times and that, you know, depending on crap they're going through, but overall you want people that if you, you know, if you, if you sprain your ankle along the way and you know, you've got some stuff that's bogging you down with work, you need people that are going to be able to pick you up and carry you for a short period of time. But I also don't want to be the guy that's getting carried every day. You know, it's like that old saying that you are the sum of the five people that you spend the most time with. Right. Like that, that, that rubs off on you. It seems like, do you, do you think that applies even within something just like hunting? Like if I'm a guy who really, really, really wants to get better at hunting, um, I feel like lots of times you fall into just a crowd of like your hunting buddies cause they're local or because yeah, by circumstances became friends. Would you ever go so far as to say like, Hey, if you really are passionate about trying to take your hunting to the next level, you should actually like proactively seek out ways to kind of grow a higher, um, uh, what's the right word? Just a group of people that'll push you even further, even in something like hunting. No question. I mean, no question. It, it's a, it's a timeless thing. You know, if I still wanted to hang out with my high school friends, I'd probably still be, you know, walking around Johnsburg talking about, you know, when we won the game against round Lake in the last two minutes, you know what I mean? It'd be <laughs> yeah. like, but you kind of have to get out of that. And honestly, I've had, I've had guys that, that I was friends with that I did, you know, videos with, or was in production with that were really passionate about hunting, but there's just a difference between the guys that they go out, they want to party, you know, they might be all gung ho about it the first night, but then they stay up and drink too late. Then they, by the third day, they can't get up and, you know, guys that, uh, I don't know, I I've been on remote remote islands with people on a hunt where I'm tagged out, my tags punched and they're the only one with the tag. I'm staying there to help them. And they're not wanting to get out of bed at sunrise or just like, let me know if you see something. It's like, no, this isn't like, yeah, I'll do it. I'm going to, I'm going to do it for the next three days and I'm here, but that's going to be the last time I do it. You know, um, you have to be willing to step out of those groups if you don't see that that group's going in a positive direction. And it's really, really hard, honestly. You know, that's why so many businesses um, fail because people go into business with someone that's a really good friend. And it's very rare that both 
friends have the same work ethic and I've had way more endeavors fail because I tried to bring someone else on with me versus saying, you know, Hey, I've got this cool idea. I'm just going to freaking do it. It's going to be cool. And I'll just make my friends part of it. You know, if they want to be part of it, they can be part of it. But the only way it's going to work is, is if I make it work. And I think, you know, you have to be able to just rely on your, rely on your own work ethic through that stuff. Yeah. When you, when you talk about work ethic, um, I think it's really easy to think about the ways that applies to stuff like your business or how it applies to staying physically fit. Um, when it comes to, you know, let's say archery, this is one of those things that the average guy or girl, like that's a hunter out there, right? They see that as, you know, a prereq to be able to get out and go hunt. But then there's someone who takes it to the next level where that work ethic becomes, um, I don't know if you want to call it an obsession, but it goes from just like understanding a basic level of proficiency to then like trying to achieve again, like that mastery thing when it comes to applying that to archery for you, when you shifted from whenever it was a long, long time ago, when you went from just enjoying shooting archery to then realizing this is a thing that you wanted to master, was there like any kind of flip you switched, um, inside your mind or was there something that really changed for you when you realized this is not something you just wanted to have fun with, but something that you really wanted to, um, become elite like what was the big change inside of you when you made that switch the change for me on anything that i just all of a sudden get fanatic about is it's things that i'm not good at you know i have a hard time i have a hard time walking away from something if i suck at it i you know i i I need to at least figure it out to where in my own mind i'm content with how i left and archery is that's how it started for me. I sucked at it. The only reason I competed was because the first tournament I went to, I couldn't even finish. I lost my, all my arrows before I was halfway through that first 3D shoot. And, you know, I left there pissed off. I wasn't probably fun to be around. And I went to a Gander Mountain and bought another <laughs> dozen arrows that I didn't even have money for. Mm-hmm. So I could go back and just f- finish till I got to the 40th target. And then the next day I was in an archery shop just saying, okay, what do I have to do? So I never get embarrassed like that again. And with hunting, it's the same thing. I'm fanatic about hunting and it, and if you've ever heard any of my friends talk about me now, I know that I kind of feel that way. I guess I don't recognize kind of, I don't know the vibes that I've, that I put off, but when animals trick me or when I feel like I'm in a position where I've like outsmarted everything and then all of a sudden they like pull this wild card out on me and I get beat or I eat a tag, I'm there the next year. Like it, it really bothers me. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's seriously, you know, I'm, I keep thinking about my last trip to France when I was hunting, uh, chamois in the, in the Alps because, the conditions really sucked. Um, we had like melting snow, then ice, then freezing snow. We had three guys up there trying to chase these things. It was so loud. You know, the closest I ever got to one was like 106 yards. And I, I feel like the fact that I was defeated that bad, I want to go back, not necessarily because I think a sham, a chamois is cool. Cause they're kind of dinky once I started looking at them, <laughs> but it's like, 
I just want to be able to say, you know, I completed the task and I, I evolved enough to make myself better. And that's really what I, what triggers anything for me is if I'm not good at it, I just, I just really have to put in the time and put in the work to do it. And honestly, things that I'm not good at, I, it, it's my best motivation for, for just continuing to try and and do it. Andy, I feel like a lot of what John's here saying is, is very in line with what you and me were talking about just a couple of weeks ago, right? With just that obsession with trying to find the little inches of ways you can get better at something that stumped you at once, right? Yeah. Yeah. I see it. I, I'm hearing a lot of similarities. Um, John, I was talking to you like, you know, when I, when I fail on a bow hunt or I, or I miss an animal or something, it, 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 it affects me, um, so powerfully that I, I obsess about that mistake, um, you know, for, for months and months and months. And then I, I try to do, you know, try to analyze that mistake, find out what I did wrong and then take the steps to improve upon that so that it doesn't happen again. And, um, I think that kind of goes along, you know, like with what you said, you know, just, uh, you know, maybe something that you didn't perform, uh, you know, as well as you had hoped and you just kind of fixate on that and you work at it, you know, at nauseum to the point where now it's become a non-issue. Now it's actually a strength. Is, is there ever a point where that, cause I, I'm the same way too, in a lot of ways. Um, but is there ever a point where that focus on like the little thing you did wrong, that that can go too far, that that obsession can go too far. Like, how do you, how, how do you, John, keep that from getting too negative, um, and instead use that as a possible kind of jumping off point for getting better? Well, there's a saying that I tell my students, or it's one that I was taught years and years ago, and I, I heard it, but I didn't really understand it. But it, it. It grew on me. And even after, you know, 25, 30 years since I heard it, I still practice it. But, you know, it goes, um, remember the past, prepare for the future, but play in the present. And that's what I do. I try to remember the past, but I definitely don't have regrets on the past. I just remember it and I let it, I let it affect what I'm preparing for in the present. And, um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I just, I just learn from it. It, it definitely makes me feel competitive. There's a competitive side of me that makes me, you know, not want to do it again, but I don't, I don't let it, um, I don't let it drag me down. There's for the longest time when I was competing, my biggest downside was, when I would make a shot and this was a lot more of the, more of a problem when I shot 3d archery, because I started as a competitive 3d shooter. So I started on unknown yardages. So I would feel like I knew the yardage to the target. I'd set my sight. And I really feel like I made, I executed a very good shot and then the arrow would land in an eight ring instead of a 12. And it was really frustrating to, because, you know, I was there to shoot a bow, but even when I made a perfect shot, I was being penalized because I wasn't able to judge perfectly. And I had a really hard time with it. And I was, 
you know, I broke a lot of stabilizers, just stabbing them into the ground. And, <laughs> you know, there was, you know, there, I was, and honestly, a big part of it was when I started competing, I had, I'd came off a football field. And when I played football, I, I played on both sides of the ball. So if I did something wrong as a quarterback, if I threw an interception, I could just freaking hit someone, you know, like the, you know, the next play that helps. And, yeah. And I, honestly, it was like a, it was like a relief. So then in archery, when you're just shooting this arrow and it hits a phone target, like and you do something really bad, I didn't really know how to how to have like a pressure valve. So my pressure valve would just be like stabbing my stabilizer in the ground or, you know, there was there was one time I was one arrow away from shooting a perfect 360 at 70 meters at my uh at my house in Wisconsin. And I remember standing, I was shooting 70 meters and I had one arrow left. And I looked down the spotting scope and there were, all I needed was 110 and I would have shot a perfect 360 at 70 meters, which for me at the time I was in, in like my early stages of shooting with the teams. I really wanted that because I wanted to be able to say that I had shot a clean 70 meter round, which I know would be very rare. And when I shot a nine, I, I just like, did this hammer toss with my bow and just launched this thing almost to the target and it, <laughs> it landed in the ditch and I, I left it there. I, I mean, I was so pissed off that I left it down there. And I remember one of my friends came over and he's like, Hey dude, there's a whole bow down in the ditch down there. And I'm like, yeah, you can have it if you want it. And I remember um, being at a tournament not soon after that. And I made this shot. I shot a nine. I got really pissed. I mean, I was like on fire. And I remember um, Tim Strickland walked over to me, who Tim at the time was coaching a lot of the Olympic uh, recurve shooters. Tim walked over to me and he goes, you know, until you learn that that arrow that left your bow, you have no longer, you no longer have control on it. He's like, until you learn that, you will never grow as an archer. He looked at me and said, the only thing you have control over right now is those arrows in that quiver. And he turned and walked away. <laughs> and I and it, it just sunk in. And I'm like, you know what? Shit. Yeah, no matter what I do, I can't pull that arrow back. Like, it's history. It's It's gone. I can't change it. So then it got to the point where... I started to find humor in that, you know, there's been times at Vegas where people have kind of looked at me like, Hey man, shut up. You're talking too loud. But I've literally said like, uh, Hey guys, do any of you want to freaking shoot the 10? Because the last asshole wanted to shoot a nine. <laughs> um, you know, and it, it changed my output, you know, my, how I looked at my mistakes changed my output. So it's a, it's a fine line. Some people learn, some people learn better from being really mad and like being hard on themselves. And then some people, and for me, I am hard on myself because I will train hard enough to not make the mistake again. But I also don't let the mistake affect the affect the, the, the time that hasn't even happened yet. Yeah. I feel like so much of this, so much of archery, whether it be just competitive or you know, preparing for bow hunting, it, it it's such a mental thing. Like, of course, there's a huge physical component to it, but a lot happens between your ears. Um, and I remember hearing you talk once um, about, I don't know how, I don't know to degree you take this, but 
um, ideas around meditation or things that can kind of reset your mind just a little bit to refocus or to deal with something that went wrong. Um, you talked once about like spinning um, some beads or something on a bracelet, I think, to help kind of recenter yourself before taking the next shot. Um, are there any things like that that you still do now to either clear your head before a big shot with competitively or in the tree stand or, or any other things on the mental side that have helped you become a better archer and bow hunter? Um, yeah, meditation, certainly it's important. And one of the things that's important from a meditative side is that you can learn to control your heart rate. So, um, or you can, you can help maintain it and lower it if you really need to. So if you're in a pressure situation, just learning how to like breathe and focus on breathing, essentially what you're doing is you're re-triggering your conscious thought process so that it's not actively thinking about a fight or flight syndrome. It's, uh, you're trying to re kind of reset your conscious to where it's only occupied by the actual physical process of breathing. And then it'll help you, um, it'll help naturally lower that heart rate because you're not dumping adrenaline still, you know, it's when you, it's when you intently think about like, this is the biggest buck I'll have ever shot. What are all my friends going to think when I show them this? Mm -hmm. Um, or some people are like, Oh my God, he's so big. I don't want to miss this thing. You know? And it's like, those are, those are keywords that, that can certainly trigger, um, the conscious to, to go into that fight or flight state. And when that happens, then your heart rate's accelerated, your breathing gets, heavier, you know, you kind of put yourself in a poor position for, um, having a positive outcome. I feel like for me, when I had, like, I had a bracelet that had little pieces of, uh, carbon arrows on it and they were all, they were all pieces of arrows off metals that, or off um, arrows that I had like won medals with, so to speak. So to me, they had meaning. So I would just focus on shifting those things all the way around. And um, for a lot of people that that do meditation, you know, they actually have like meditative like bead bands for their wrist, where they're they're kind of just actively thinking about moving that bead from one position to another position, from one position to another position. And what they're trying to do is just reset the conscious focus on the breathing and bring it into play. Guys that struggle with, um, guys that struggle with target panic or buck fever. These are a lot of times it's people that one have never learned some of these small tricks that do for sure help you. Um, they do help you stabilize, but they also help you be able to somewhat tolerate that feeling. And if you haven't felt it, it feels way, way, um, it's like overtaking. You almost feel like there's just no way you can get it done. And then as soon as you let that arrow go, even if you see it missing, there's this huge like rush of like, Oh, thank God I got rid of that arrow, you know, and I've been there, you know, I've been in those situations. It's a, it's a terrible place to be in. Um, but you have to, you have to do two things to get out of those situations. One you have to be able to recognize when it's happening and know some of these little things to try to reset it to where you're focusing on your process again and you're not focusing on the prize. Um, 
And then the second thing is acclimation. You know, being in those moments to where your intensity is high and you're you're kind of putting yourself in these like game day type situations more often. It just gets the be to the point where it's not scary. You know, it's it was scary the first time I got behind the wheel of a car. I mean, the first time I ever got on a dirt bike, I was scared when someone's like, okay, you got to do like one down, four up. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> um, so, but the more you do it, all of a sudden you just realize, okay, you know, I just jump on this thing and go. The subconscious is like doing all of it. Consciously, you're just thinking about the having fun part. So you have to be able to acclimate yourself. And I think that's a big reason why events like the Total Archery Challenge are really important for people that are also trying to get more involved with hunting. Because, you know, you get in these situations where you're shooting with a larger group. um, People are all watching with their binoculars. You know, you're not wanting to essentially you're wanting to to put on a good performance in front of people Um, when that happens you feel nervous naturally, but the more you do it, you'll acclimate to it. So I really feel like a big part of this is just continually working hard to, um, to like feel that pressure and be in some of those situations and your performance overall will just continually get better because you've been there. This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly auto parts who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. And the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced? Brake light fixed? Quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto, O-R-E-I-L-L-Y, O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Yeah. Andy, I know that you've you've been in some of these situations that John's talking about here. Um, we've talked about you and me, but I know you had some some questions for John right around this topic. Um, any of those come to mind? Yeah. Um well, John, going off what you uh, were just talking about and um, trying to, you know, 
kind of focus on the process and, and keep, uh, you know, I guess anxiety, I always describe it as trying to keep the anxiety low by focusing on the process. Um, you know, in your teachings, you know, you, you promote, uh, you know, kind of that, that back tension, uh, pull through unanticipated, um, style of release, um, which I've adopted, um, and it's been a huge help, uh, for me, but, what I what I found um, is that style of shooting, as opposed to like the, the you know the command style, um, you know that that often leads to you know some target panic and, and trigger punching that sort of thing. Um, oh, that will always lead to it. Yeah, and just this, call it punching because whoever you know. I know Tim Gillingham likes to call it command style, but I'm just going <laughs> to tell you it's it's a. You know, I can call people someone who like, you know, they 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 have command beer drinking habits, but in the end they're just drunks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good point. yeah. So um but what I've found is like this this unanticipated style of shooting, it's it's a very relaxing way to shoot. Like um so I always go back to, to my story, you know, I I've been bow hunting a long time and I had a lot of success and I was always a, a trigger puncher and I did okay. Um, you know, I, I made some good shots. I made some bad shots, um, wounded some, you know, animals, but I, I obviously, you know, after, um, you know, studying your ways, I wasn't in control and I had adopted, you know, your teachings and uh, put in the work and now I shoot an unanticipated release and I've just found that I'm just so much more relaxed in the shot. Not only, you know, at things like the total archery challenge, what I also participate in, but like in that hunting scenario with that big buck standing there, like I, I'm adrenaline is high. I'm excited, but it, it that, that style of shooting for me is just, it's such a, a relaxing thing. Cause I'm just focusing on, um, you know, that pull through motion or, um, you know, focusing on just letting my pin float. Um, do, do you agree with that? Is that your belief yeah. as well? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think it's really important that people get to the conclusion that in order to gain control, you have to first lose it. And, you know, you lose, you feel like you're losing the control when you really start training to get an, a surprise shot. You feel like you you, you feel like you have to know when that's going to go off. But the reality is you are so much more stress-free when you don't know when it goes off, but you do know where it's going to go. You know, there there's this transition of, yeah, you're nervous about something new. I get it. And there's some, you know, honestly, it used to be way harder to find that. And the reason why is because years ago, People didn't know proper technique. So when they would try to shoot a tension activated release or a hinge release and their posture is completely incorrect or they don't know how to anchor properly, they a lot of other variables were happening at the same time and they weren't sure of where things were going to go. But, you know, the thing that I take the most pride in right now is when I open up all of our hashtags, like knock on, knock on nation, school and knock, the amount of people that could literally mirror my form that I struggled 
for years uh, to, you know, to, to kind of perfect, that took like so much time. I can't even, it was like decades of like doing that. And then it just got to the point where as I taught, I just kept simplifying this down and like boiling it down to where I could teach someone that had never shot a bow and they dang near look like me in like an hour. And I'm just looking at them like, damn it. You know, freaking <laughs> wish I could have done that. But then those same people, um, those same people all of a sudden just can take over a release like that and start to focus on this um, surprise, unanticipated shot. And they just, they don't even think about it. It just feels so good. And honestly, when you're shooting good, archery is so fun. And, it, and honestly, when you make this switch, there's this short little window that all of a sudden you make this one shot that sticks out as I've never made a shot that good. It went off so easy. I freaking everything seemed like in slow motion. The arrow just pounded the center. It's like you kind of just have this standout moment of, oh, yeah, that's what everyone's been talking about. And then once you get that and you can start to repeat that, you realize like this is super fun. And then when you go out into a, a hunting situation and this bull of a lifetime steps out and you're just sitting there thinking about your process and, you know, your your posture's good, your stance is good and you draw back, you anchor properly and you settle into that peep and the pin's right there. And yeah, you're a little nervous, but you get your finger on that safety and you're, you're or off the safety or on the trigger and you're just embracing that little bit of shake that you got from being nervous and you pull through and that sound breaks and you just know you're like freaking dead like that. You're dead. Like, I know I don't have a question of where the shot's going because I know what a good shot is now. I mean, once someone has that feeling in a hunting situation, it's like the best sense of accomplishment. You just realize that you've like jumped the biggest hurdle in this entire sport. I yeah. feel like I feel like there are some people that think that you know to get ready for hunting season bow hunting they pick up their bow a month before the season start shooting it making sure it's still hitting on the zero and then they're good to go but to achieve what you just described that level of proficiency and confidence um i know it takes a whole different commitment what how would you describe what it takes to someone to get to that level? What kind of lifestyle or what kind of commitment does that take? If you had to, if someone was like, Hey, how do I get to this point? How would you describe what would be necessary? Um, to get to that point? Yeah. I mean like not, I'm not saying shoot 300 arrows today and tomorrow and do this thing, this thing more so like what kind of commitment or what, uh, what amount of your life daily practice, what does it take to make that next level jump to that point? Well, I think the the biggest commitment you're going to have to make is not making excuses for yourself. I mean, if you want to say like, you know, hey, I kind of I want to train that way, but I'm I want to command fire when I go hunting. Well, OK, you're wasting everyone's time. You know, uh, do you really want to be better? Do you really want to be different? Because if you do, then you could easily do what I do every single year when hunting season's over, which is probably the time of year where I develop the most poor habits or, you know, I would say my shots instead of being like on a level nine or 10, which is what I strive for when I'm training a lot, 
during the end of hunting season, I'm probably at a six or seven. I haven't shot very much. I've only, you know, pulled arrows back on animals or maybe checked my sight marks here or there and, you know, in between hunts. Um, you know, I feel like, I feel like when I decide to reset, which for me, it's always around the first of December. Um, I actually, and this year I posted it, you know, if you go to the knock on archer YouTube channel, there's a series called school of knock. It was 12 weeks of this week. We're working on this, this week, we work on this, this week, we work on this. And it, it just builds you to exactly what we're talking about in essentially a 12 for me i'm okay doing it low and slow you know there's days where i might be able to shoot 20 arrows there's days where my goal is to shoot 100 um but i try to do that you know the majority of the week and i work on that one thing enough to where i feel like i've embedded it and i can move on to the next thing there's so many people and i just had um a variable, a very reputable person on like social media and someone who's actually very, very training oriented. Like that's his whole thing is training. You know, I, he was saying like, um, you know, I want you to build a bow for me. And I told him, well, I'm not going to build a bow for you the way you're shooting right now. Cause you know, it's a reflection of me. I, you need to change because you're punching the trigger. doesn't look good, you know? And so he just said, well, what can I do? And I said, take this I spell it all out right here. Focus on this, do all of this. And then the, then in the end, you're going to be set up in a posture and in a, in a placement to where if I build you a bow, I know it will fit you properly um, because the bow he's got right now doesn't even fit him properly in my opinion. So, um, you know, one of the things he said was, well, I don't have 12 weeks. And it's like, well, okay, you can do it and you can do it and, three or four, but you know, you're, you know, the mentality now, there's like a lot of people that just want to hack and some things like this, if you want to, if you want to achieve mastery, which is what I think the theme of this program is, Mm -hmm. take hack and throw it out the window. If you're looking for a shortcut, like this isn't the place, you know, if you're looking for a shortcut, you're going to be like 80% of the other people out there that are struggling. If you're if you're really wanting to do something to where you're have potential to be the best at it and at the end of your you know your last day hunting you can look back and say I did everything I could to be the best hunter I can then you need to look for work you need to look for like the ability to work at it not the ability to hack it you know yeah. that's what you need to look for yeah that's a great yeah. point John, hey, going back to uh, the shot execution, I had a a question. Um, So I sometimes go back and forth with this, and I kind of wanted to get your opinion. Um, Sometimes when I draw back and I shoot, um, and I can achieve an unanticipated shot either way, but sometimes I will uh, draw back, anchor, and I focus on the pulling through motion like you described and just letting my, just let, letting the pin float, letting my aiming be kind of subconscious and I can achieve that unanticipated, unanticipated shot, but I can also switch it. I can actually focus on just letting my pin float and just keep saying, let it float, let it float. And then my shot execution happens subconsciously. Is there one better than the other or is it okay if the, if the result is a, an unanticipated shot either way? Yeah, the 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 goal is a surprise shot. 
you know, and there's certain times where if you've worked on one enough, you're not necessarily having to think of the other. Like when I'm really in practice and hopefully by like the end of that week uh, or that end of that series, and this is normally what I do during indoor season is kind of when I train to, to perfect my form. By the last week, all I'm doing is looking at the target. I'm just staring a hole into the X-ring. I'm not like, I'm counting through my steps in my head. You know, I'm going through stance, grip, shoulder, anchor, peep, you know, pull. I'm like going through these in my head, but I'm not like consciously thinking about what my release hand's doing or consciously thinking about the pull. I'm just letting the subconscious do that stuff, but that takes an extreme amount of time. The fact that you've committed to it and you've worked at it enough, it's allowing you to sometimes think about the pull, but other times you can just think about the float. And honestly, if you embrace that float, then you're not worried about being in the pocket. You know, that's what I, when I call, once you let off that safety in between when you let off the safety or when you start applying pressure on a trigger, that moment between then and when that arrow goes off, that's, that's kind of the pocket. And really the only thing that's happening during that time is you should be building pressure for the shot to go off. And you should also be seeing some movement in the front half of that bow, which is going to be what you're seeing through your sight. And being able to embrace that float and realizing that, okay, if I have a magnifying glass in my scope, I'm going to see more. If it's windy out, I'm going to see more. If I'm tired right now, but I'm still trying to get my reps in, I'm going to see more. If I'm shooting uphill or downhill, I'm going to see more, but that's cool. I just want to be here, let this shot break when it is, and I'm like totally comfortable with that. When you can make that step, and if you personally have made that step, dude, that is a Jedi level step. It's very rare that people get to that. And I mean, that's how I feel when I shoot. I I really could care less what I would score in backyard practice. Honestly, I'd pro- I don't even care what I'd score at any of these total archery challenges. What I do care about is that I make good shots. And if I feel any sense of anxiety or unease of my mind during that pocket time, then to me, that's not a good shot. And all I'm striving for is being up there and making good shots and, and letting, you know, letting the rest take care of itself because it's my opinion that it takes care of itself way more times than not. If you just focus on that. Yeah. Well, I, one of the biggest takeaways or one of the things that you described that was so helpful for me early on, um, was that you strive to make, a 10 on your shot execution, not necessarily hit the 10 ring, but your, your goal is to score a 10 on your shot execution. And when I kind of shifted focus to that, to try to make that perfect shot every time it, it was just like you said, it didn't really matter what my pin was doing. It, my, my pin was moving around, floating around, but it was, it, you know, it, it was always coming back to where I was looking at. And, and no matter where, in the process, my shot broke. The pin always seemed to find the middle, you know, and, and, and I just, it kind of, 
it just got the the snowball rolling. I became more and more comfortable with movement and just focusing on that that execution. And I'm just surprised, you know, sometimes like you feel like that shot break and it feels like your pin was, you know, two inches to the left and you go up there and it's it's still in the middle, you know. And I just it was just such a, a big uh, just a big realization for me of, of how badly I was doing things wrong, you know, for so many years. If you see that enough, like I remember John Barklow, um, who I'm sure you guys know. Yeah. I remember John Barklow told me, he said, dude, once I saw that happen enough times, he's like, I just kind of took it as like benefit of the doubt that as long as I'm doing my job behind the line, like that weird weird shit like that will go down and it won't, uh, it won't, I'm, I'm like, I'm more expecting it to like land where I want it to. If I'm just being dynamic versus, um, being surprised that it is off, you know, because he said, I've just, I've kind of surprised myself so many times by thinking, Oh, I should have two of them that are way left. And then I get down there and they're in the middle and it's like, Whoa. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. that's an awesome feeling, <laughs> you, John. You going back to uh, like you know um, letting your pin float and accepting movement. Is there a time where you do things to minimize that? Um, like I was talking with Mark, I I actually use a, a rear bar um, on my bow hunting setup, and I know that you don't really promote that, but um, so. For me, what I was noticing, we both shoot, Mark and I shoot Matthew's bows. The grip runs a little lower in the system. They tend to be a little more top heavy. So what I found is like keeping my bow level um, and, you know, minimizing uh, pin flow, I needed to add some some side weight and some, and some weight to the rear to kind of minimize that. Otherwise, I was like correcting it with my hand, which I didn't feel comfortable doing because then I felt like I was imparting you know, hand torque. But I, I was wondering if you could just kind of touch on that, like your thoughts on that, you know, with the scenario that I just described, but also just like minimizing pin flow. Like it's okay to accept some movement, but when is it excessive and when do you try to minimize it? Well, I kind of just base it off the fact of, you know, if it's like, um, I don't know. One way, I guess the way I'll talk about it is I have a Jeep and my wife has a Jeep. My Jeep is, my Jeep's lifted with 35s. My wife's is stock. Like if there's a lot of wind and you have a Wrangler and you're going down the road, like you're going to move around. How my wife's moves around is like manageable. How mine moves around is not what I'd want my sight pin to do. (laughs) So I think you kind of, you thrive to have something that you understand if you're not being perfectly still, you're going to see some movement, but you don't want the movement like very sporadic. You want it in like almost like a continual thing. Like if it's, if it's always just kind of moving down and coming up, moving down, coming up, moving down, coming up, some of that movement might not even be because of the bow. It might be what your brain is wanting to do. It's, I always feel like when I cover an object, my brain, because it knows that's where it wants me to hit, 
my brain wants confirmation that that object's still there. So the subconscious actually lowers that just enough to where you can peek and see it again, and then it allows you to go back up. And then you, if it's like, eh, I don't believe it's still there. Can I just take a quick look? Oh yeah, it's still there. It's kind of like the peekaboo thing. Um, I am, I'm okay with that. But what I'm not okay with is when it's like down and up, right over, up, 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 down, you know, like I don't like doing that because I'm I'm fighting something. I don't like that. If it's consistent, then I'm okay with it. Um, if you have a slow float, then yeah, you can certainly slow it down with mass. Um, but mass is really hard to mass is hard to tote around the timber. Um, mass is sometimes hard to to deal with if you are committed to shooting every day. Mass can can somewhat come back and bite you. The better thing that you should do if you're not wanting to shoot counterweights, which I personally don't like sidebars for hunting. I think they're very impractical. Um, I personally would rather you use the canting option on your bow sight, which is what they've always been designed for. If you set your second and third axis on your sight properly, those second and third axes, they should be forward of the site, which allows you to turn your entire site housing, you know, kind of left or right. So essentially, if you do always cant your bow slightly to the, you know, top limb to the right, you can take your site and slightly move the bottom of that site to the right so that your site is perfectly ver vertical, even though your limb tip is slightly leaning and your second and third axis will still be correct if you do it the proper way. Um, mm -hmm. I would rather see that to compensate for a quarter of a bubble than I would someone, you know, trying to drag. There's just no way you would use, like if, if you were on your belly, shooting axis like I was two weeks ago in Lanai. I mean, I remember looking at Joe and I'm like, could you imagine having a side rod on right now? And he's just like, you take it off and throw it after your first stock. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you would. Um, you know, sometimes depending on the terrain and how diverse you are in your hunting, sometimes you may be fine. I mean, I've got I've got a guy that's kind of part of our knock-on staff that's filmed for me for a long time. He shoots like a 20-inch stabilizer and a side rod. It's in a shoot-through riser all the time for hunting. Hmm. It's it's like one of the weirdest-looking things I've ever seen, but <laughs> he's totally comfortable with it. He's a target shooter that loves to hunt, so he just kind of more or less takes out a target setup that just has fixed pins and, and an arrow with broadheads on it. Um, and he deals with it, but he's also in Wisconsin sitting in blinds or tree stands. Like I think he did an elk hunt himself maybe a year ago, but when I look at all the different places I go, man, imagine trying to drag a sidebar through canola early season in, in Alberta. He'd, I mean, there's no way you could do it. Not practical. This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts, who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. 
and the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced? Brake light fixed? Quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto, O-R-E-I-L-L-Y, O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Um, something you talked about brought to mind a uh, uh, topic that Andy, you and me were talking about last night. I'm going to steal an idea you had been discussing with me here, which was when we're talking about pin float, on the practice range is one thing. On... Uh, actually in the field, it's another. And I imagine that like, when I'm at different ranges practicing behind the house, of course you see more float, becomes more erratic the smaller that target is because of how much further you are away from the target. So I'm curious, John, Andy had been posing this idea to me, which was how do you go about, what's the best way to go about determining your maximum effective range? Um, and there's lots of different, everyone tosses up different numbers and people like to debate what's an ethical range, what's not, what's effective, what's not, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and as I'm practicing out there and you see how much pin float you get and you start to become comfortable or not comfortable with a certain level, how do you go about determining what, uh, what a quality effect or what your maximum effective range is and how should someone out there listening go about trying to figure that out for themselves is it just can you do what you know some people say get get a whole group in a pie plate in three inches in whatever or is there a more methodical way that you go about approaching that well the way i approach it is i just straight up look at someone and i'm like can you guarantee me that you can put one in the vitals and if they're like well i don't probably not i'm like okay well then there's your answer. Um, you know, I think if you practice at distances long enough, um, you know, you know, I, I'm not going to tell someone, you know, if, if someone can hit it nine out of 12, nine out of 10 times, they can hit a, you know, a pie plate at a hundred yards, but yet at their local club, as soon as someone shoots, you know, every, at the end of every 3d round, we do the, Everybody throw a dollar in a hat and shoot the iron bucket 20 yards, and that guy goes out every time. Well, guess what? I don't care how many he can shoot out of 10 at 100. The guy unravels as soon as there's pressure on him. So, you know, you there. I don't think there's a clear answer to that. You know, I know that me personally, um, honestly, 
There, there's been several shots with with uh, Joe Rogan, for example. There's been several shots where we've been in a position and he's wanting to make a shot. And I'm like, you're not making that shot. And he's like, would you make that shot? And I would look at him and be like, no. And he's like, you could make that shot. And I'm like, with the, with what's going on? No. Like, I remember having this conversation with him um, in Lanai. It was, a, it was a deer at 60 yards. Now, you know, Joe's more than capable than shooting at 60 yards. He's more than capable of shooting at 70 or 80. You know, I've seen him shoot, you know, he's a good shot. He doesn't like miss targets. He, he's a good shot. Um, he's definitely, you know, I wouldn't say he's great, but like he's, he's above average. He's, you know, I don't, I wouldn't question that he could hit it in the vitals, but when there was wind, and I know he hasn't shot his bow enough to know what is what that arrow is going to do with a quarter bubble or a half bubble. Um, it's an axis, which they can jump through their own butthole to get away from an arrow if they want to. Um, you know, there's there's like factors in there where I just looked at him like, dude, I wouldn't take that shot. I shoot 60 yards, probably 50 arrows a day in my backyard, but there's no like – there's no way I'd be able to tell him. And honestly, even when I when I was stalking in on my deer with Cam, we had the bucket 55 yards, and I'm like, I, I'm not going to shoot him that far. And I freaking took the chance of belly crawling to the next tree where I could get behind it and, and, and kind of come up because – I really didn't want to take a shot that far. I mean, because it's not about what I'm capable of doing. It's about what that animal's doing. And if you hunt long enough, you know, you know, shooting a whitetail deer in Wisconsin is a lot different than shooting a deer that's coming to a, a whitetail deer that's coming to a feeder in Texas. I mean, you know, a 50 yard shot at a whitetail up here in the Midwest, it's just out in a food plot cruising along you know chowing down on some turnips no problem 50 yard shot at anything in tech like a deer in texas it may not even be possible dude i don't even know but i wouldn't try it you know so it's it's really hard you have to you have to have the you have to have the knowledge and the experience of being able to not only read the animal but know the animal. And then more importantly, like small factors, like little wind gusts, you know, has it been raining? Do you know what your bow does when there's a little bit of water on your, on your cable slide? Did you have your bow in the back of the truck going down the gravel road in Alberta where that red dust gets all over everything and it starts to slow down your speed? Little things like that, like they all factor in. So there's just no way you can, I can tell someone this is your effective distance. Yeah. Andy, where's your head on that? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I, it, it takes me back to, uh, uh, the last two years in Wyoming antelope hunting. Um, the first year, you know, I, I was feeling you know, very confident, you know, shooting at some longer distances. I've been doing it for a lot of years practicing. I felt very competent at a certain range with conditions, you know, that were perfect. And the, the first year I, I did shoot an antelope, you know, at, at a longer range, it was dead calm. He was feeding, um, you know, the, the situation was perfect. Fast forward to the, the following year, 
completely different scenario. It was very windy. Um, I kind of went in there maybe a little overconfident and, um, I missed a shot, um, at the first antelope that I, that I shot at. And it was, uh, it wasn't as long as that other shot. It was actually quite a bit shorter. Um, but it was windy and it was gusty, like you were saying, and it was, you know, it was blowing me off target. And, you know, I, I tried to wait for the wind to die down and, and make a good shot. And, you know, it, it blew, not only was it blowing my bow off, it was also, it also just sailed my arrow. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like what, what am I doing? Like that was a really dumb mistake. And I, and I, I realized it right after I did it. And I was like, you know what, this is a completely different type of situation and I'm going to have to get in close to get it done on these, uh, uh, you know, on an antelope this year. So I I agree with you. It just kind of goes back to, you know, the conditions and the whole scenario and, and you really have to kind of take a look at that and, you know, and, uh, you know, I guess make that make that decision with the the factors that you have there. Yeah, it's a case by case type situation. Um, and it's interesting when I I feel like I, I listen to you, Andy, talking to John, and, and I know you followed John's um, ideas and, and practices very closely over the years, and and I've looked to you. Andy, as a, as a local mentor of mine, and I, I'm a few years still behind where you're at, and I'm just figuring out how to, I, I had the target panic issues over the last couple of years. I've now switched to trying to uh, implement the unanticipated release. Been tr- been using the silverback this year, John, really liking that. Um, so I'm, I'm early in this stage, though, and, and you're much further along, Andy. Um, as you're as you're looking at this, and as as you've heard John through his podcast and his YouTube videos, all these different things he's putting out there, um, you're at that. I think you're on the high end of the typical hunter out there. What are the next level things that you're still wondering from John as far as how to take your, you know, I don't know if you've got a couple other ideas like that you're still struggling. You're, you've got these small little inches, these little details that can probably take you to that next level. Um, what are those other things you're curious to hear from John? Cause, cause I have all sorts of questions, but they're pretty basic still. Cause I'm, you know, early in this journey. What else, what else do you need to know, Andy? Yeah. Well, well, real quick, I wanted to tell John, this is a really special podcast for me because, um, I, I got tuned into your podcast. I think you had just launched episode two and that was, a that was, a an episode that really cleared some things up for me. I was struggling with target panic really bad in that 2013, 2014, uh, you know, 2012, uh, right around there. And, um, you know, I, so I identified it pretty early and you were the one guy that, you know, helped me make sense of what was going on. And it is just so influential to me over the years. And I, you know, I jumped in, you know, head first and I, I've never looked back and, and I, you know, I was struggling with enjoying archery and now I love it more than ever. And it's really spilled over into my success as a bow hunter. So thank you for that. Um, but also, like, you know, for those guys that maybe are what you would consider higher level that have mastered this type of shot execution, you know, the guys like Joe or the guys that have, uh, you know, been doing it for a long time, what what can those guys do? Those guys that have already mastered that, what can those guys do to squeeze out that last little bit of accuracy or continue to improve? Is there is there something that you know, maybe you 
you kind of your really high level archers that you coach to take them to that next step? Well, with really high level archers that end up eventually hitting some type of slump, what's amazing to all of them is that what I naturally do is just try to reset them back to the very beginning and instead of trying to instead of trying to like make adjustments afterwards it's like take everything away and go back to like here's a shot process here's what i want you to think about here's a string we're going to just execute on a string you know i go back and try to just do a complete reboot and then obviously once they get the confidence again then they're able to get back on track um, sometimes for the elite level guys that are somewhat struggling, there's a couple things that can happen. One, they can just have expectations of themselves that they may not be capable of. Um, you know, it's, it's like as much as I want to be able to do, as much as I want to be able to go out and run like, like campaigns, I mean, I'm six five two thirty, man. No offense, I'm I am beat to the ground if I go out and try to put miles on like that every day. Like there's certain things where I'm like, you know what? I feel like I feel like I'm good when I'm running, but I'm you know I'm I recognize the fact that I'm I'm kind of made to just be a mid a mediocre runner, but I feel like I have good technique and I'm good. I feel like I'm definitely doing it good enough to get by. Um, the other thing is some elite level guys or guys that have done it a long time and maybe they know what to do. Some of them really don't put in the time that you have to, to be polished like some of these people. And that's a big thing for me. You know, when people ask me why I don't compete, uh, there's just, I don't have the time, you know, I would have, my, my 20 year old self would have beat would have beat me right now because my 20 year old self shot four five, six, seven hours a day. And even if I wasn't doing it right, I did it wrong consistently. And because it was just time and repetition. So I think as long as you're really recognizing the, like, for example, there's some people that have like natural, like, they're naturally shaky, like when they go to do things. You know, have you ever seen people where their hands kind of shake if they're really focusing on something? Like that type of person, they're going to deal with that. And it's yeah. it's going to be hard to be as accurate as someone that's shooting a bow that their pin is super stable and they're making good shots. So you kind of need to be truthful on your self-reflection of you know what i'm really solid i feel like i'm making great shots i practice all the time then okay well now you're a candidate to talk about a third thing how much are you actually putting into fine-tuning your arrow setups to really match your bow and do you know your bow setup is set up properly to where it's maximizing the groups that your arrows can provide based on how the two of them team up together. Um, so some of those small little points start to come from small little things like, you know, how many gadgets do you have constant? There's some people that are just gadgety people that have like, you know, they have like 
weird D loops. They want a kisser button. They want some kind of a weird new peep site. You know, they want this site that's got a fiber optic dot in the middle, a sticker that's a ring, um, you know, all these different things that are kind of, in my opinion, gadgety rather than just simplifying it and really focus on being able to um, really focus on being able to kind of perfect what they're doing and know if what they're doing is uh, is going to work. Um, there's people out there, and I've done this. I've, I've posted a picture a few days ago of this target bale, and there was like three different groups of arrows on it. Each of those groups of arrows were all shot out of the exact same bow at 90 meters, but every every single arrow group had a much different result on the paper. And those results were based on how those arrows match the bow. And that's one thing you really have to know about. Andy, I know we've got, we're running out of time here. So I know you had one, maybe two other questions on this uh, line of thinking. I'll let you, okay, yeah, I'll let I, you send one more. So, John, I mean, we have to wrap this up. John, like you, you know, you, everybody kind of looks up to you, you know, as a, as an archery coach and, you know, we see you make, you know, great shots consistently and, and, uh, you know, certainly, you know, highest of the high as far as archery skill level. But can you tell us, I just want to kind of like humanize you a little bit and, and ask you, um, you know, give us a, a, a reason why John Dudley might miss, might miss a, um, I miss all the time. Okay. Well, what's, what causes <laughs> yeah, you, I'm not what a causes you to miss? Um, lack of practice. I mean, lack of practice. Uh, you know, lack of practice is one. When I break down, you know, a lot of the things that I talk about, I talk about them because I'm dealing with them. You know, when I make a post talking about the importance of shoulder position and how creeping, a, uh, how creeping causes you to miss and where that miss is going to go. It's because I've been doing it all morning, you know, um, you know, there, that's, that's why I practice. That's why I did that school knock series because it's like, you know, and there were days where I showed people like, I can't shoot a 300 today. I can't, but my goal is to be shooting 300s with high, you know, high upper 20 X counts by the end of this period, because I, you know, I'm realistic. I know that I can't just pick up my bow anytime and shoot clean. Now, am I going to, can I set down my bow and pick it up and be above average? Yeah, I think I'd feel comfortable saying that. But, you know, I certainly do miss, you know, there's times where as soon as the shot breaks, I'm like, damn it, bubble was off, you know, and being able to, to recognize like, why you miss is very important and also being able to recognize what actually like some type of a technique or flaw that's broke down like right as the share the arrow is breaking that's really important too um because it helps you identify you know if i make a shot and the shot breaks and i kind of see the arrow come out a little sideways like instantaneously I'm thinking like grip pressure and then all of a sudden, oh, I feel the front of my riser pushing really hard on the front of my index finger. Dang, I was freaking putting a little front finger torque on that thing. Um, you know, I learned to recognize those. You know, it's not like, I can't say I 
swap arrows around all day long, but you know, I, I really strive to, to get in, into a rhythm and into a flow state and into a zone. And sometimes it may take me 20, 30 arrows to get there. Sometimes it may happen right off the bat. Um, you know, but I certainly miss, I did a live feed the other day. And as I was talking, I was showing people how my site worked, turned around and made a shot at 30 yards, but had still had my sight set on 50 and just, you know, totally blanked the target. So, you know, I, it's, it's common for me, you know, it happens. I'm not, I'm not a robot. Um, but again, that's kind of goes full circle back to what we talked about at the very beginning is now I'm in a whole new position where it's like, you know what, that happens, but at least I know why, and I'm not going to let it happen on the next arrow. I'm going to make corrections. And I think if you have that approach, then eventually you'll find this little click where you're just going to be making really good shots. And sometimes you'll go out and be like, man, I couldn't miss tonight. And those are the best feeling days. But there's also days where you go out and you just feel like your shoes coming untied all the time. And honestly, on those days, I just kind of embrace the suck and just say, it's not meant to be tonight. You know, I'm I'm shooting some eights. I really wanted to shoot 12. So it might be a good night for me to go and, you know, get some of these fletchings repaired and get, get this D loop, you know, replaced. And, and I'll, I'll do something archery related, but not necessarily reinforce bad habits. I feel like everybody listening to this, if they're bow hunter, which probably 97% of the folks listening to this one are bow hunters, we all want to get better. We're all at different levels, though. We all have kind of a different starting point where we're at right now, but we're all looking to take that next step. And you talk to people all the time that are trying to take that next step, and they look to you to, to figure out how to do that. Um, you've got to hear a lot of things from those people. You must hear explanations for why they're not doing that or problems or questions or concerns or excuses. Is there something that you oftentimes just wish you could tell these people is there one thing that just jumps up over and over is like that challenge you wish you could give everyone or the thing like everyone's looking for the magic bullet and you could say well i challenge you to do this or or here's one thing i really wish people would would start working on would focus on if you could leave people with one final challenge today uh, or one final parting piece of advice uh, that seems maybe somewhat universal what would that be john to wrap us up here be honest with your work ethic and again, this is going right back to where we started. So there's people that feel like they might put in the effort, but deep down, are you really like, can you really answer that question? People that come and say, you know what? I tried the silverback. It just wasn't for me. And it's like, how long, how long did you try it? Well, I tried it a week. Okay. Well, I, how much do you shoot in a week? You shoot three days a week. Well, yeah, maybe, you know, sometimes four days. Okay, so you tried it four days and then you gave up on it. So that's not a fair time. So you really have to be truthful to yourself of what is your work ethic. And if you know your work ethic's good, then also be truthful to yourself of are you looking at the right information? So I'm confident that if you're looking at the information that I give out, I'm confident that I'm giving out information that helps people 100%, and I'm confident in the information that I talk about or I don't talk about it. Um, 
And if you can answer yes to both those things, I'm confident I did what you told me. I'm confident I'm putting in the time. Um, then the last thing I'm going to leave you with is trust it. This past weekend, I was actually um, driving through Arizona and uh, well, I drove, I flew into one place and I drove to another and then I ended up flying out of another. Um, actually, I flew to one, got picked up to fly to another, then drove to one, then flew back. But anyway, um, on while I was there, I was in Tucson and um, the buddy I was with, I'm like, I said, does PSE still have their like pro shop and their outdoor range? And he said, yeah, yeah, they do. And I said, I'm like, I want to see it. Cause I said, the last time I was here was, I think it was 25 years prior. And, uh, and I remembered, I remember shooting there with like Terry and Michelle Ragsdale. They, they came out and shot after work. Like it was, it was pretty cool. So I walked into an archery shop. There were several guys in there that once I started talking and saying, like, I remember Terry was over there and Michelle was over there and they heard my voice and they kind of looked and they're like, oh, my gosh, you're in here. And a couple of them had silverbacks. They had knock on fletchings. And I said, oh, this looks really cool. And he's like, yeah, I did it all myself based on your videos. And just being able to say, dude you did perfect. Now just trust it and shoot it. I think that's one of the biggest things for people. And it's the biggest things for high level archers that get in slumps that end up coming to me is all they want is the reassurance of what they're doing is right. And way more times than not, what you're doing is right. You just really got to put in time and put in undistracted focus one of the things that's hard right now is people um, people take and I'm 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 bad about this. There's times where I practice where I'm uninterrupted and I'll just make a I'll make a picture or post about a a shot that I've done um, that was an hour or two hours earlier. I'm not like trying when I'm doing live feeds or trying to make posts or texting my friends or talking during my practice. It's very uninterrupted. It's very interrupted practice and it's not very good. Same thing's true with the weight room when people are like, dude, I go to the weight room every day, but I just never really change. And I'm like, hey, man, normally you're doing like three Snapchats. You're freaking on Facebook. You're on Instagram. Like, you know, you're not actually <laughs> going in there and being effective at what you're doing. So I just want to urge people that if you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am, I am willing to put in the time and I'm confident that I did everything that you told me and I'm not like making excuses for things that might not feel comfortable this second. Then the next thing is just trust it and just put in time because it takes it's, it's a proven fact psychologically. It takes at least 21 days to create a habit. So you have to commit to at least that before you can feel like you're not doing something the right way. And that's, uh, like you said, this is a perfect way to wrap it up, kind of come in full circle talking about the importance of that ethic, developing these good habits, sticking to your guns on things like this, and, and just doing the work. So the, the final thing I got to ask, John, is just, 
where can people find more of this information from you? You, you talked about the fact that you're very confident that the information you're putting out there is quality and, and spot on, which, which Andy and I can both personally attest to. So, so what would you recommend folks check out first to, to learn more? Um, well, if you go to the Knock on Archer YouTube channel, um, you can easily just type in type in a subject that you're thinking about, you know, and then maybe put my put my name in front of it. Just John Dudley, how to shoot a release, John Dudley peep site, John Dudley anchor position. And you're, there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of videos in there on do that, you know, or, or about that, you know, how to fletch an arrow, how to set my site up, how to tie a D loop, how to tie a knocking point. I mean, anything, just put it in there. And then every day, like my most, my most frequented, um, place is Instagram. You know, it's at knock on TV, N O C K O N TV. I definitely post as I'm practicing. I post results afterwards. I do a lot of live feeds on there make sure notifications are on, because in the middle of practice, if I've made a mistake and I want to talk about it, I'll go on a live feed and, and show you. Or I'll also talk about things that I might be doing in the field or things that I might be packing for a camp. So that's really my channels. And honestly, if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now, there's no way I would be out there on these things. I'm I'm there for I'm there for the, the archery community and the bow hunting community. So if you're interested, those are the places to be. Perfect. All right, John. Well, can't thank you enough. This is, uh, as usual, always a lot of uh, interesting stuff, a lot of education, and Andy and I both really appreciate it. So thanks for taking this time. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, John. And that is it for today. I got to believe you're going to leave this one inspired to start kicking some butt, whether that's with your bow or out in the woods. So don't let that energy fizzle away. Get out there and get after it. Hunting season, it is just on the horizon. It's going to be here before we know it. So until next time, thank you for being here and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.